Okay, good morning everyone. Good morning. Welcome back to our Foundations of the Faith class. We are looking at the Apostles' Creed and we're just about to wrap up the first article and get into the second and third article. Let's begin with an invocation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. In looking at the first article, we have, uh, we've done a number of things. In the first place, we simply want to see, by way of great overview, what the, uh, what the Trinity is and, and who God reveals himself to be uh, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not three gods, but one God. And then we are looking at the first article, specific to creation, and uh, creation generally attributed to the Father. Of course, it's more complex than that, as even Genesis 1 shows us, but this is our, uh, this is our basic foundational Christian theology. So, we have seen then that God um, not only makes all things, and as, as the scriptures teach, he does this in, in six days. He makes all things, um, evening and morning, the first day, evening and morning, the second day. And then that gets reaffirmed in a number of ways, even quite concretely with uh, the actual six-day week, for example, in Exodus 20. And so that is the Christian worldview. I know that there are um, all kinds of ways of trying to like bend and twist that and make it fit so that like evolution can be true and a six-day creation can be true. The problem with that is, is even if you could somehow finagle that and make it work, you end up doing violence to the text and you end up doing violence to many other texts of Scripture that talk very plainly about um, sin and death having their origin in Adam and Eve. And if you just think of evolution, it's, a, it's an entirely different creation myth. Um, it, is, it is a myth where the, the creative power of evolution is, I guess you could say it's twofold. It's uh, sex and death. Boy, why would our culture be interested in a kind of creation myth that had to do with sex and death? Hmm. <laughs> Let me think. Uh, we're, we're, also, we're also, there's this perverse kind of comfort we take as, as uh, people with a guilty conscience, as fallen human beings who have lost the image of God. There's this kind of guilty pleasure we take in a narrative that tells us, hey, you're just animals. You're just beasts. What do you expect? Don't expect too much for yourself. Don't expect too much of the world. That's, that's who we are. There's no difference between us and the beasts. Um, we can leave these behind uh, and simply cling to the Word of God in Scripture. Um, trust that God knows what He's talking about and what He's doing far more than, quote-unquote, science does. If you've ever read, in, read into the science and the scientific literature on um, creation theories, you find it's ever and always changing. And the more you look into it, I actually encourage you to look into it if you, if you have interest in this. The more, the more you look into it, the less convincing it is. The less you feel like selling your Christian birthright for the pot of porridge that is quote-unquote science, which seems to change about every 15 minutes. So we simply cling that, to the fact that God uh, is the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and that His creative activity takes place exactly as the Scriptures say, not least of which 
uh, Genesis and Exodus. There's even in Jesus himself, in the apostles of the New Testament, there's, there's no sense whatsoever um, that we're to take the Old Testament as anything other than uh, historical truths and uh, factual, factual accounts that Adam and Eve, in fact, was historic, um, were historic. Okay, so then, sort of back to the task at hand, God not only makes us, but he sustains us, and he present tense and continually gives us all the things we have. And so, there's a way in which, in light of our baptisms, in light of the cross of Jesus, we can begin to see all things as a gift from our Heavenly Father and as a continued gift. We'll talk about that some in the sermon today, just the idea of receiving our bread daily and how uh, Israel in the wilderness received the manna daily. And anything they kept longer than that rotted or, you know, it went bad. And so God was, you know, in effect, he was teaching them. I will give you your daily sustenance, and that's very much that's very much the case. We don't um, we don't have a God who sort of creates the world, winds it up, and disappears into some infinitely far away heaven. That's not who God is. God is very actively involved. Um, so not only does He um, make me and all creatures, but then He gives me body and soul and reason, senses, every last thing we have, and then all the things we need for this body and life, from food and drink to wife and children. Um, we talked about how he guards and uh, how he guards and protects us from all danger and harm, um, even sort of paradoxically, uh, leading us ultimately through death itself into, into life with him forever and into the resurrection of our bodies. Then we talked about also how all of this is done out of God's divine goodness, and mercy without any merit or worthiness in us. And we're going to touch on this as we touch on the fourth petition in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Luther reminds us that um, God gives daily bread to all evil people as well. But we pray that, um, in this, that, that God would lead us to realize this and receive our daily bread with thanksgiving. So we can see that all daily bread, all sustenance, all, everything that everyone has is a gift from God. And there's much more that could be say, said about wealth and the blessings and the dangers thereof, uh, but we'll just table that for the time being. Okay, so that takes, us, that takes us through the first article, the first person of the Holy Trinity. Any questions you have or any uh, additional comments you have before we go into the second article? All right, the second article is in many ways how we come to know the first article, as strange as that may sound. Um, the revelation of God is in Christ Jesus, and to see Christ is to see God. Now, we confess here in the second article that Jesus Christ is also our Lord. He is true God, and um, he is involved in redemption. So the redeeming of us as a fallen race. You know, God creates us. He put us on a trajectory he creates us good. He puts us on a trajectory to what's perfect, what's, what's mature and complete. We fall from that, and we would be lost forever had not he sent his son Jesus Christ, and Jesus restored us to that trajectory, uh, redeemed us, bought us back. And that's, um, yeah, so that's a fair enough description of redemption. He, he buys us back. He pays the cost um, to put us back on that path, that original path that God had set before us as a race, um, to become the fullness of the image of God. 
All right, so just simply picking up with the creed and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. Well, let's simply walk through this as best we can. And if I miss something important, let me know. Um, not only are we saying, I believe in God the Father Almighty, but we're also saying, and in Jesus Christ. His only Son, this is the Son of the Father, and that may be a little hidden to our eyes, but that in and of itself is a claim to divinity. Um, as, you know, as, a, as a human father, you don't beget something that is not human. You, know, you don't beget a duck or a cow. Um, you beget a human being. Right? So, um, for God, the Father Almighty, to beget, he begets that which he is. He begets the divine. So, even just in the language of sonship, um, you can see the divinity of Christ. Um, so, he is God's Son, the Father's Son, and he is our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The point here is without a human father supernaturally, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Luke's Gospel gives us this detail. So without a human father, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and then thus born of the Virgin Mary. Uh, and then you can see here too, in what, in what sense he's divine. He's, he's conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. That is, he's true God and true man. A point that Luther is going to draw out in the uh, what does this mean section below. Um, you know, again, it's kind of like if you, don't, if you don't really accept the virgin birth because virgins can't conceive, then how on earth are you going to accept that God took on human flesh? You know, and if you take on God, the, the, I mean, if you, if you believe the fact that God took on human flesh in the person of Christ Jesus, then a virgin birth should be no big deal. I mean, again, can God do what he wants to do or not? That's, that's really the fundamental question. Did I forget to unmute David? Oh, you're usually here when I've done something really stupid <laughs> and messed something up. Yeah. All right. Good enough. Good enough. So, um, true God and true man. Now, <laughs> these next words seem like they're not important, but they're actually of the utmost importance. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. In many respects, these words ground the entire teaching of the Creed in history, and thus make it falsifiable. All of these things which seem like they might be weaknesses superficially, but they're actually strengths. Without, um, without these words under Pontius Pilate, one might be tempted, especially in these latter days of apostasy and unbelief, to take this whole thing as kind of a myth, you know, something outside of, outside of time and space. You know, true, but only true in the mythical sense, which is to say not true. Uh, but this is, this is actual history, okay? Not only, not only born of the Virgin Mary, but then suffering under Pontius Pilate. You can go see who Pontius Pilate is, where he ruled. You can check this in terms of extra-biblical sources. Hey, if there was no Pontius Pilate, 
our faith is in vain. If Christ didn't suffer under him, our faith is in vain. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, our faith is in vain. Christianity stands and falls on historical events. And that's actually a profound, a profound strength. Because all other religions, when viewed in this angle, are very much nonsensical. That is, you can't make sense of them. They're not historic truth claims. They can't be verifiable. They can't be falsifiable. Uh, they're just, like, strictly speaking, in this logical kind of fashion, uh, they're, they're not available to our senses. Um, they're insensible or nonsense. Um, what is sensible is that there was this man, Jesus Christ, and he walked around, and he did things that only God could do. And he claimed to be God. And thus he demonstrates himself to be God in human flesh. And he suffers under Pontius Pilate, this historical figure. So Christianity is, it, it certainly transcends history, but it is also deeply rooted in history. All right, so he suffers under Pontius Pilate. This is... Um, his passion, you can think here of how he is uh, scourged and crowned with thorns, wrapped in the purple robe, mocked all ahead of his crucifixion, even the carrying of his cross up the hill. Um, you know, at the end of a whip, all of this is his passion, his suffering. On uh, Golgotha, that's the hill, um, named because it, it, had the, it had the look of a skull to it, this hill. Um, Sometimes called Calvary from, I think the Latin is Calvaria, which is the, uh, the skull. So that's where we get Calvary. And he is there crucified. Um, we are coming up on Holy Week, so we'll have lengthy meditations on, on his passion and his crucifixion and also his death. From the cross, he says seven words recorded in the scriptures, all of them extremely poignant, in fact, really inexhaustible in and of themselves. He dies on, of course, Friday, and that Friday comes to be known as Good Friday. He's buried on Friday, so he's in the tomb Friday, he's in the tomb Saturday, he's in the tomb Sunday. He rises Sunday morning, and that's Easter. Interesting to note, just by way of passing, that the, the seventh day, the day of rest, is precisely the day our Lord Jesus rests in the tomb. That's Holy Saturday, and we'll be having our, our Easter vigil this uh, Many of you have come to our Easter vigil at 5 a.m., you brave souls. The previous year we've had it in the dark and in the cold. Um, we're going to be having it Holy Saturday evening this year. Uh, two opportunities, one at 5.30, um, masks and no singing, and the other one at 7. And uh, we, hope you'll, we hope you'll come and, and see this. It's going to be a bit modified from what it was at 5 a.m. in the morning. Um, but uh, and if you've never been, though, this is the time. It is, a, it is a beautiful service because it covers almost all aspects of our faith, and it is, properly speaking, uh, the first Easter service. So the whole church is already, already we're decked out in Easter because it's the vigil, it's the, it's the waiting and watching for the resurrection of Christ at the dawn on Sunday morning. And so we stand in vigil together. It's also, uh, you know, for many reasons, mostly because faith has historically had many, many visitors come on Easter morning and it's just been easier and it seemed to be a wiser practice to not have Holy Communion for that reason on Easter Sunday. So Easter Vigil becomes your time to commune on Easter. And so you definitely don't want to miss uh, Holy Saturday and the Easter Vigil. 
Okay, so he dies on Friday. He's buried on Friday. He rests in the tomb on Saturday, the Sabbath, the day of rest, and he rises on Sunday morning. And that is, uh, you know, many folks connect that to the reason why Christians um, worship on the first day of the week, on the day of his resurrection. I think, I think his resurrection certainly is a factor, but really his resurrection is the foundation upon which a new creation is begun. And so that first day of the week is very significant in the early church as the, as the day of salvation, the day of new creation, the first day of a new creation. And understood, understood in a really broad sense as being this continuous day. So then the first day um, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the first day of this new creation is the day in which, on which we worship. Okay, he descended into hell. Now, the scriptures speak uh, very little and very cryptically about this. As, as Lutherans, we recognize that the early church had many different ways of looking at this and interpreting this, some better than others. And in the formula of Concord, we bind ourselves very narrowly to simply this. When Jesus was on the cross, he said to his Father, Into your hands I commit my spirit. And he handed over the Holy Spirit. He um, according to John's Gospel. Uh, so he pours out his Holy Spirit, not only into the hands of God, but then upon his church. And this, um, then what happens? Then what happens? Well, as Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. So Jesus is in paradise with the thief on the cross. Um, and we can, say, we can say his body goes into the earth and rests in the tomb for those three days. Prior to, prior to Jesus showing himself to be raised from the dead, Jesus is rejoined in his body, uh, rejoined with his body, um, and descends into hell in his body, not to suffer, but victorious over death, to proclaim his victory, um, to preach uh, to the souls that are there in prison in Fulake. And so this is, this is um, not a preaching like, hey, you get a second chance, you know. Everybody who didn't believe in me, come on out. You know, that's not what's in view. But he triumphs over the devil. He triumphs over the, the powers of hell. Luther really likes this view that he, he sort of like goes down and, and bursts the gates of hell and like, like smashes the place up a bit <laughs> and, and uh, just shows, shows that his, by his death and his resurrection, he has completely undone the powers of the devil. Sin and death have been undone. Okay, but much, much beyond that, we don't, uh, we don't bind consciences. We, we leave it open. It's quite a bit mysterious. I, I, it's something we will all learn a great deal more about um, as we see our Lord Jesus himself. So, Scripture does give us an indication of this. We confess it in the Creed. Um, we just wish we knew a lot more than we do. As with all things theological. All right, then the third day he rose from the dead. And so, that's, that's the showing of himself technically as, as risen from the dead. You know, um, so this is his, uh, his appearing in the garden. And of course, that's significant, isn't it? Um, where does creation begin? In a garden, of course. And where, does Christ, where is Christ buried and then raised? In a garden. And so he steps out as the new man, the new Adam in a new garden. And a new creation has begun. All right. Forty days later, after showing himself to eyewitnesses, the scriptures say over 500 eyewitnesses saw Christ raised in his body, many of them um, in some form or another uh, 
touched him, touched his body. You remember Thomas, of course, very skeptical of our Lord's resurrection and uh, being able to touch the wounds in his hands and the wound in our Lord's side and um, he believes. Remember what he calls Jesus? He says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, no, 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 don't you know that I'm not divine? No, of course not. Jesus doesn't correct him at all because he is divine. And when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, Jesus is like, yes, that's the good confession. This was, this was brought out of you by the, by the Father, by the Holy Spirit. So um, here we have the divinity of Christ confirmed by Christ himself. Um, he, this is why he eats with his disciples to show that he is uh, truly alive in his body. He doesn't eat because he really needs to. Uh, He eats in order to demonstrate this. So he proves himself to be raised for not less than 40 days, and then he ascends into heaven and sits at the right hand of God. Now this is kind of, it doesn't really come across this way, maybe in the English, but this is loaded theological language because his ascension into heaven is precisely the way in which he is with us even to the end of the age. This is such a Jesus thing to do. It's like the exact opposite. I'm going to ascend away from you and thus be nearer to you than ever before. I mean, there's the paradox. There's the paradox. Mary grabs a hold of him in the garden. Remember how she she mistakes him for a gardener. What was Adam's first job? A gardener. You see what's going on there? It's great. Such great theology. So she mistakes him as a gardener. She is like the gardener, just as the new Adam. And she grabs hold of him. You know, Raponi teacher. And he says, he says the weirdest thing, the most like, well, I mean, everything Jesus says is the weirdest thing. And because it's so counterintuitive to us and it's so wonderful. And it just doesn't, on its surface, it doesn't make any sense at all. He says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? This is the only time I can cling to you. When you ascend to your father, by definition, I can't cling to you. But he completely flips that and says, do not cling to me until I, I have not yet ascended to my Father. What's Jesus getting at? And what is this teaching? Why is this event recorded in the scriptures with such significance? It's precisely the mystery of the ascension. Jesus, locally present in the garden, where he can be grasped a hold of by one sinner, that's not how he's going to dwell with us as church. Think of, think of Jesus continued in his risen but local presence. Where, where would he be right now? Maybe in Jerusalem, who knows? How long would you have to wait to get there? How long have you had to wait for your vaccine? <laughs> There'd be lines and government and bureaucracy and you'd never get to see him. And then if you did get to see him, I mean, how much would it cost? And then what would you get? It'd be like, you know, when you're a little kid and you get to sit on Santa's lap, he, here's your seven seconds this whole year. What would it be for Jesus? Like, here's your seven seconds, your whole life. Is that how Jesus wants to be with us? No. So this is the beauty. Mary does what all of us would want to do. Grab a hold of Jesus. And yet he says, he says very instructively, do not yet grasp a hold of me. I have not yet ascended to my Father. When Jesus ascends, he ascends in such a way, not that he disappears, but that he becomes present to each and every one of us, um, albeit in a different mode than he was present to Mary. But nonetheless, If you want Jesus all to yourself, you have him. Go to Holy Communion. There he is, face to face with you, and more than face to face, giving himself to you, making himself one with you. 
Jesus becomes accessible to all of us in, in his word and in his sacraments. To hear the word of Jesus is to hear the living voice of Jesus. Where his word is, there he is. To receive the sacraments of Jesus is to receive Jesus himself. Okay. All of this accessible only to faith, but nonetheless truly him. And truly graspable by each and every one of us. No lines, no fees, no seven seconds and it's, out, and it's up. <laughs> but just Jesus as often as you want him. And so that's, um, that's the mystery of the ascension. Uh, we, really, we really cannot overemphasize the ascension and its importance. And likewise, this language of sitting at the right hand of God. The right hand of God scripturally, if you just go look up that phrase, scripturally, the right hand of God is where he is working to save his people and have mercy upon his people. So for Jesus to ascend to the right hand of God, it's, it's kind of a mistake in our minds if we picture him, okay, let's, let's picture this really literally. He is ascending up. I mean, then he gets to like, he gets to like, 30,000 feet, 40,000 feet. Okay, up he goes. Now he's out of the atmosphere. Okay, think of how much space he's got to get through. Then he gets, up to, he gets all the way through space, all the way through the cosmos, the 13.8 billion light years or whatever we can, right? And there he goes. He keeps going. I mean, by the time he gets up there, he's going to have to turn around and come back, you see, because he's due back for his parousia, for his second return. So he gets up there, and then he gets into heaven, and he's got he's to trek up to the, to the right hand of the Father who's sitting at his throne, and there he sits at the right hand and nowhere else. That's not what the right hand means, you know, not at all. Not at all. Um, we, we can see that the right hand is as fluid as his ascension. We don't really think he physically blasted through outer space and maybe he'll arrive at heaven, you know, any time now. Um, no. Nor do we think that he's locked at the right hand of God in some, in some like kind of childish sort of way of thinking. As he ascends and fills all things and makes him avail- himself available to the church through word and sacrament, so then he is at the right hand of God, the place and locale at which God is working to save his people and show mercy to his people. So Jesus is very much at the right hand of God, albeit if we read these lines in the way they were intended, using the biblical nomenclature, the biblical language and worldview, we can see how... Um, this, uh, how this is meant profoundly and truly. So he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God. I mean, what did Jesus, what did Jesus say to his disciples at the end of Matthew's gospel? Lo, I am with you always. Uh, just for a few minutes, I'm going to go up to the right hand of God and I'm going to be locked up there. No, <laughs> lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So in ascending to the right hand of God, it doesn't mean he's locked up there and there only. Ascending to the right hand of God must also mean that he is with us and with us even to the end of the age, you see. Okay, so um, from thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. The living and the dead, has, as a phrase, has a little fluidity in terms of how people have, how people have led this. this really, uh, read this, excuse me, this really has to do with how people read um, First and Second Peter. Generally speaking, I think, it's, I think it's easiest to just interpret it in this way. Um, all who have died will rise at his return, and those who are still alive, as Paul says, will be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye, 
and then the judgment. So he judges the living and the dead. That's kind of just the simple chronological way of, uh, of thinking of this. Um, I don't know that it's any less complex to wrap your head around. But another way to read this, and another way it has been used in the history of the church, is to judge the living and the dead refers to believers and unbelievers. Believers are the living and the dead are the unbelievers. Um, that would be a way of reading this in light of, say, Ephesians chapter 2, where apart from Christ we are dead in our trespasses, but um, we have been made alive by God in Christ Jesus. And so then living in the dead take on those more dynamic terms, you see? Okay, well, either way you want to take that. I don't know. I don't really have a preference there. Okay, let's get into Luther's explanation. What does this mean? I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord. Okay, so this first section is, is our Christology. And you can see you have the three major historical components of all Orthodox Christology. And if you've taken any Christology classes with me, you've heard these three points probably ad nauseum. Here's your chance to hear them again. He is true God, true man, one person. If you keep those three things straight, you'll avoid all heresy <laughs> in terms of your Christology. He's true God, true man, one person. And you can see that right here. Jesus Christ, there's one person. True God, begotten of the Father, and true man, born of the Virgin Mary. Okay, that's it. So there's your Christology. This is who Christ is. True God and true man and one person. Now this is, this is a profound mystery. It's really second only to the Trinity itself, the Incarnation. As soon as we think we understand the Incarnation, we don't really understand it at all. Um, it's, a, it's a profound mystery. And if you want to dig just a little deeper from the Apostles' Creed into some, into some technical Christology, a really easy next step would just to be to find the Athanasian Creed and read um, the second half of the Athanasian Creed. You'll begin to see how, how complex it is. Okay, so that's who Christ is. Now, what does Christ do? That's the next paragraph. He is my Lord who has redeemed me. Now that's the language of buying back. Um, it's kind of the language of the agora or the marketplace. Um, there's many different ways the scriptures speak about um, Christ and, and what he does for us. And this is, this is one way. So he redeems me. And who am I? A lost and condemned person. How does he redeem me? Well, purchased and won me from all sins, from death, and from the power of the devil. Not with gold or silver, but with his holy, precious blood, and with his innocent suffering and death. So what does this mean? Well, Christ is true God and true man, and he has come to redeem me, a lost and condemned person, and to do this with the shedding of his blood with his holy, precious blood on the cross and his innocent suffering and death on the cross. In other words, he came to be crucified for me, to shed his blood for me in order to redeem me, a lost and condemned person, so that all sin, death, and the power of the devil no longer has any power over me. And that's true for each and every one of us as, as we confess, I believe in Jesus Christ. 
So here then would be redemption proper, and that's what the second article is about. You know, Christ is our redeemer. He's the one who redeems us from these things. Okay, to what purpose does he redeem us? So that we would live our best lives now? So that we would still die? And, you know, I mean, no, of course not. So that I may, in order that I may be his own. Okay, and this is such beautiful. I mean, we were gods to begin with, weren't we? He gave me my body and soul. And then who snatched us away from God? The devil. We became his possession, lost and condemned, belonging to him by right. I mean, so that the devil could very truly, like, and very rudely interrupt your judgment and say, I'm sorry, he belongs to me. See the sin all over him? He belongs to me. He's a rebel just like I am. I'm his father, not you. He's coming with me. So how do, we, how do we get redeemed and bought back and brought back to the family of God and become God's possessions once more? Through Jesus and through his cross. Um, so that by his precious blood being shed, by his innocent suffering and death, he redeems me, buys me back from the devil, that I may be his own. And so we belong to Christ. We're not our own. And in belonging to Christ, we belong to the Father that I may be his own and live under him in his kingdom and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. Okay, so that's, that's like the point right now and for all time is that he has redeemed us so that we might be his own possession and live under him. He is our king. He is our Lord. He is our God. And live under him in his reign, in his kingdom, and serve him. And how so? Not in our own ways, not in our own manner, but in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. Okay, just as he is risen from the dead, and what's being anticipated here is our own resurrection from the dead, you know, which we have in part. We've been baptized and buried with Christ. We'll get into this theology in the baptismal section. But we've been raised even now spiritually that we might live a new life, that we might walk with him. So there's already a kind of spiritual resurrection that's taken place. And then the fullness of that uh, comes to fruition in the bodily resurrection. Just as our Lord is risen in his body, we will be risen in ours. And you know, this is such a beautiful thing, such a beautiful thing, because all of our, all of our shame is erased and becomes our glory. You know, and when we're raised in our bodies and all things are done, we... Where our, where our sin would be, we'll simply see the blood of Jesus and the love of God. And where our shame would be, we'll simply see his compassion and his mercy and his love. And where we'll see all, our, all the ways in which we've lost to sin, death, and the devil. He'll show us our victory over it all through faith, through resurrection. And he who crushed the serpent under, under his heel... The God of peace will crush him under our feet as well in due time, Paul tells us in Romans. So um, all of these things we need not fear. You know, we don't spend the rest of, we don't spend the rest of eternity with a black eye. <laughs> we don't spend the rest of eternity as, you know, the angels are like, well, I guess they're welcome, but, you know, they kind of have a past. <laughs> kind of have some baggage. It's not like that at all. The redemption of Jesus is so perfect and complete that we, are, that we are given to live under him in his kingdom, serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. Okay, Just as he is risen from the dead and victorious over it, we rise from the dead and are victorious over it. It's so beautiful, too, because Jesus bears our sins as his own. 
I mean, what shame is it in having and possessing what, our, what God's own son had, had and possessed? So beautiful how he removes all shame by enduring it himself. Well, we were worms meat. We went through the humiliation of death. So did God's son. There's nothing humiliating about it. And he conquered it and he brings us through so that we conquered as well. Well, we, were, we endured time in the devil's kingdom. So did Jesus. Through his incarnation, he came into the devil's kingdom. And by the way, he bound him and started plundering his house and hauling all of us out with him. So all the shame is removed by Christ and what he does. All right, and it just ends in a very uh, Luther-esque way. This is most certainly true. All right, so there's creation and there's redemption. Um, Let's pause and see if you have any thoughts on redemption, anything I missed, um, confused, went over too quickly for your taste. There's a hand in the back. Do we have a microphone uh, person here today? Well, okay, I'll just have to re, uh, revoice it for those on the World Wide Web. Yeah, I wanted to go back to the Lord's Supper um, and draw the distinction between the evangelicals and the such that speak metaphorically when it comes to the body and blood of Christ, but yet are such, such literalists when they say Jesus is at the right hand of God. They know that because... <laughs> And they know that it can't be the body and blood of Christ because he's at the right hand of God and it can't be anyplace else. And yet they beat us up for being uh, taken mm. of the Corinthians uh, verse uh, liter- literally. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's a great point, Bob. Um, so for the sake of trying to keep it foundations and, and as simple as I can, um, obviously, there are, there are different views about Christology and who Christ is and where Christ is and what Christ can do or can't do. And that ties in directly with people's doctrine of the Lord's Supper. Um, so that there, are, th- there is a tradition or two within Christianity that says because Jesus is locked up at the right hand of God, he can't possibly be there in the Lord's Supper. Right? Or at least his body and blood can't be present there in the Lord's Supper because his body and blood are locked up at the right hand of God, kind of thing. Yeah. We can see any number of mistakes there and issues there. But the chief of which would be, well, if Jesus in his body is up in heaven, but Jesus outside of his body can be with us always, even to the end of the age, then how many Jesuses do you have? Two. You've got one Jesus in his body and one Jesus outside of his body. So, um, remember our rules, true God, true man, one person, one Jesus. So, how is, how is the Lutheran way of looking at this different? Again, since this is a foundations class, I'm going to try to keep it as basic and non-technical as I can. Um, in the first place, Jesus is God. Whatever he says is true. <laughs> He can do whatever he wants. Okay, that would be the, so if he says, this is my body, we have no reason to say, excuse me, Lord, that's metaphysically impossible. Your body is up in heaven, you know. So there's, there's like the most basic it gets. What, taking it just one step further. Um, Christ has ascended into heaven. When he says of the bread, this is my body, and he says of the wine, this is my blood, it's not two Christs, it's not one Christ up in heaven or one, and one Christ down here sacramentally. Rather, it's all one Christ. And what is actually coming together is the heavens and the earth. This is a foretaste of the wedding feast of God and man um, in marriage together. 
the dwelling place of God with man and heaven and earth united as one. And so that's what we have a foretaste of that in the Lord's Supper, that when Christ makes himself present for us. This is why in our liturgy we also say with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, we very truly believe that heaven and earth are being joined in one around the Lamb of God who is enthroned on the altar. And so angels and archangels and all the company of heaven are there with us in, in worship. I, which is why I never get demoralized when the sanctuary looks a little empty. There's just, uh, there's just more room for the holy angels. I've never preached to less than myriads upon myriads because <laughs> they're all there, whether we see them or not. Okay, well, I think anything, uh, thank you for that, but I think if I answer anything more, it'll get maybe too technical for for our scope, yeah. Okay, yes, sir. On the part that says the third day he rose again from the dead, does that mean it sounds like he is already risen once? Oh yeah, <laughs> no, that's that's kind of a common. I don't, you know, I don't know. I've never looked into that. But this language of of rise again, the the again is you were alive and risen, then you died, then you rise again. You see, that's where the language comes from. Um, it, it is sometimes confusing when we just take it in the abstract. It sounds like he, um, like he died and rose and then died and rose again, right? Yeah, no, not two resurrections, um, but rather being alive, dying, and you know, being alive again, or being risen again. Yeah. yeah. Okay, hopefully those hand gestures were really helpful. <laughs> I worked on those in front of the mirror for some time. All right. Anything else on redemption, or shall we go on to sanctification, the third article? Okay. Yes, sir. I wanted to ask a question about uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we think as humans uh, chronologically. So prior to the conception of the egg in Mary, uh, second person of the Trinity uh, existed as spirit. And uh, I guess that's an assumption. And then if that, if you could talk to the con a context of a Christophany uh, in the Old Testament, and then uh, prior to the creation of the world, uh, was the second person uh, a spirit? Hmm. So uh, I'm thinking before creation, mm -hmm. during Old Testament period, before conception. I'm just trying to think of chrono uh, chronologically. Uh, the second person in spirit, and then how does a Christophany fit into that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. It's a good question. Rather than restate that, I'll just try to give a positive answer that will be helpful to those online. And, um, so, so the scriptures say that God is spirit, and so it, you know, using this framework and using this language, you can think of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as all spirit. And that's, that's fair. That's fine. I mean, we're not going to just push that into any kind of weirdness. We're just going to leave it there with what the scriptures say. All through the Old Testament, you see the second person of the Trinity. Remember the first Father and the second Son and the third the Holy Spirit. You see the second person of the Trinity, the Son, wrapping himself up in kind of earthly things and earthly imagery. Very famously, uh, remember the bush that burns but isn't consumed, the burning bush? So this is, this is the, the son, before he becomes man, wrapping himself up in a bush, okay, that, that burns and burns but is never consumed. 
we see other times where he wraps himself in other things, like the pillar of uh, fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. The scriptures say very plainly that the Lord is in these things, that the Lord is in the fire, that he's in the burning bush. We see this figure continue to emerge throughout the Old Testament, um, sometimes called the angel of the Lord. And this angel of the Lord will speak of the Lord and be spoken of as the Lord himself, you see. Already leading us into this understanding that there's this, even though God is one, as Deuteronomy teaches, as the Old Testament teaches, there's this multiplicity within God. There's one who is God and yet with God, you know. So we see this angelic kind of figure. And there's, this, there's a, a very similar figure, this man of God or this warrior of God that from time to time shows up on the eve of battle and then goes in like Braveheart style and wails on everybody, right, supernaturally. Okay, so what is, what is with all of these Old Testament instances where the second person of the Trinity is wrapping himself up in vis- invisible creation? You can even think a little bit along the lines of what the tabernacle was. Here, God wraps himself up in the tabernacle and is present among the people. This is exactly what John in his gospel takes as a a template for the incarnation. Uh, God wraps himself in the tabernacle of human flesh. So what do we see throughout the Old Testament? We see all of this buildup and this lead up that this second person of the Trinity is the one who wraps himself up in the, in the stuff of creation. And that comes to its climax and absolute fulfillment when he wraps himself up in the crown jewel of this creation. And that's humanity. When God becomes man and wraps himself up and wraps himself up in such a way that he is permanently man. Now this is too much for our little noodles to wrap, you know, they, they get cooked real fast on this one. But but it is nonetheless true. We simply have to confess that in Christ Jesus, God has become man. The second person has become man in such a way that he will never not be man again. You know, his, his time to like sort of let humanity off the hook would have been his death. <laughs> Just don't take that body back up again, right? But he does. He takes it back up again and joins himself with humanity, even in his incarnation, so intimately, so mysteriously and marvelously that even the angels desire to look into it. Um, This is a change in the second person of the Trinity, so profound, and also lifts our race so so high that we will just hardly even be able to to imagine it. And we will will hardly, as Luther says, the second we see this and understand this, we will uh, will think back to this life and and think, "Why, why wasn't I willing to suffer more? Why wasn't I willing to love more? Why wasn't I I more faithful? God promised me all these things, and if I had believed them, if I had seen what I now seen, I would have been absolutely fearless. And that gives us motivation for how we ought to see ourselves here in this life. I know it feels miserable sometimes being a human being. It feels like we're about to step up from the worms sometimes. Um, And it feels like just deep humiliation and shame and lament and regret. Let's, let's, trust, let's trust God who becomes man, that he is quite capable of redeeming us and pulling us up out of all of this and uh, turning our shame into everlasting glory in ways we can't conceive. Yes, sir? So when Jacob wrestled with God... Yeah, yeah, great one. But, but, but there's a difference between that and the other instances where he takes on other earthly things. Because here he's, he is 
God incarnate. So would you say that Jesus became man in the Old Testament, but it just wasn't permanent? Is that? Nobody says that. Um, yeah, I don't know. In the, in the history of the church, I'm just kind of saying, no, nobody puts it quite like that. It would be more like, so for those online, um, when Jacob wrestles with God, uh, it's definitely God in human form. But we stop short of saying there's an incarnation. And probably the difference would be this, specifically in the language of being incarnate of the Virgin Mary or being born of the Virgin Mary. He takes on human flesh there in such a concrete and tangible way as to join the human race. We just have no indication of that. It would probably be much safer and much more accurate to say he takes on the form of a man. Uh, which is no different than when he shows up as the warrior of God, you know, and this, this, uh, this man of valor. He takes on the form of a man. Um, but I think, I think everybody would stop short, and I think everybody does stop short in, in, in the church of saying that that's any kind of incarnation. Yes, but that would be another great theophany and another great build-up and lead-up to this. Yeah, yeah. That's such a crazy... T- All of these texts are just so great, and they're so wonderful. But I love that text because... It really shows the fatherly heart of God. Um, he, wrestle, he wrestles with Jacob, his son, and he lets his son win. I mean, any, any father who wrestles with their son, you know that you don't get to win. <laughs> or else that ends, in, that ends in fury and tears. Uh, you know, you, you let your, you always, you, you give a good fight. You give a good fight. You might even do the equivalent of kind of putting out a hip. You know, you let them know. You let them know. Um, but, but, uh, yeah, you lose, because that's, that's the way it's supposed to be. And, and I, so I love that. You can see the fatherly heart of God in that, where, where he loses and, God, and Jacob's you know, clinging to him for a blessing. Oh, and there's that great part about the name, too. Remember Jacob asked his name? And there in this account, he says, he says uh, why do you ask me my name? Which is this great like Old Testament hint. Uh, elsewhere, he says, why do you ask my name, seeing that it is Wonderful. And wonderful is one of the Old Testament titles for the Messiah. So there's this great theology that weaves itself through the Old Testament regarding the name and the identity of this second person of the Trinity, which really comes to such a thunderous climax then when the angel says his name should be called Jesus. And we finally have it. We finally have it. For he will save his people from their sins. Yeah, beautiful. Okay, so yeah, we've got um, the, old, the Old Testament is fertile, fertile ground for Christology because we have all these, it's the same, it's the same Son of God prior to taking on human flesh. There's no, there's no difference there. Now this will really kind of, this will blow, blow people's mind too because, you know, people will get this very, they'll have an agenda that they want to push and they'll want Jesus to push their agenda. And so, you know, they'll just take a part of the Gospels or the Jesus of the Gospels as they understand it. And the Jesus of the Gospels happens to think all the things politically that I think. And he pushed that forward. Except for the fact that that's not the first time Jesus shows up in the Scriptures. And the data set for who Jesus is and what he's like is actually much more vast than merely the Gospels. It's the entire Old Testament. So, you know, there's, this, there's kind of this idea that Jesus was like walking around in, in Birkenstocks, smoking weed, preaching communism and, and pacifism. And it's like, yeah, good luck with that when you think of that Jesus is the one of the Old Testament who's uh, doing all the things he does in the Old Testament. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm seeing that we're just about out of time. So um, anything else on the second article? Or maybe we'll wrap up there. And then, and then next week we'll hit this... Um, 
we'll hit this very important article, uh, the third article, what the Holy Spirit does, and then how that affects our conversion. You know, how, how God saves us by grace apart from works and even apart from our own decision and choice. Um, but he graciously convinces us and converts us of the redemption we have in Jesus. And he does so through his Holy Spirit. All right, the Lord be with you.